my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Let me just run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Mark Moss Show where we talk about Bitcoin and we talk about cryptocurrencies and the decentralized revolution that is happening right now, right before our eyes. Now, I try to bring you everything that you need to understand this. I try to bring you the education so you can really understand what's going on. I try to bring you the latest breaking news and of course I bring you some of the best and brightest guests in the space so you can get some different perspectives. Now, you know, trying to understand this is difficult. And when you don't understand it right, what happens is um, usually bad things. Now you can get lucky, but bad things, right? So for example, if you don't understand it enough, uh, maybe you under allocate towards it, maybe you over allocate towards it, maybe um, you don't understand it. And so then you get shaken out of your position early, for example. And so you really need to understand it. And so you can you know, get the right position size and learn how to hold it. And one of, you know, there's a lot of things. Actually, I spent a few weeks um, going through all the different FUD, fear, uncertainty, doubt headlines or the big objections that we hear about Bitcoin. Um, one of the ones I didn't address because it's a bigger topic that I wanted to cover at depth is one of the ones that I hear all the time of Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme. Now, um, <laughs> what is a Ponzi scheme? Um, really, what does that really mean? What do they mean when they say Bitcoin's like a, a Ponzi scheme? 
Um, and why is Bitcoin is Bitcoin a Ponzi scheme? Yes or no? So I want to I want to explain this in a way that's easy to understand. Uh, hopefully educational. Well, it's definitely educational. Hopefully entertainment. Um, and really, I think this is going to give you a lot bigger perspective. And if you um, think that Bitcoin could be a Ponzi scheme, it maybe give you a whole different perspective on this. And if you already are a Bitcoin advocate, then I'm going to give you the information you need to answer this question when you hear it from someone else. Now, um, I hear this all the time. I've heard it compared to the tulip mania, you know, the Dutch tulip mania, but really this Ponzi scheme. And uh, the Financial Times is uh, the FT.com. It's a big um, financial news news publication. They came out with a article and they said, why Bitcoin is worse than a Madoff style Ponzi scheme. So what does that even mean? There's a lot to this, a lot to unpack here. So I want to kind of break this down. So let's address this. <clears throat> first of all, like I said, <clears throat> it's a big, it's a big claim. So first, the thing we have to do <laughs> is what is a Ponzi scheme? Like, what does that even mean? Right? So let's, let's, let's take on that topic. First of all, like I said, this is going to be entertaining, and it's going to be educational. But if we go directly to the US Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, which is supposedly out there to protect us, I, don't, I say supposedly, because I don't know if they are. Um, but I'm going to take I'm going to give you a quote directly from the um, SEC, which says, quote, a Ponzi scheme is an investment fraud that pays existing investors with funds collected from new investors. Ponzi scheme organizers often promise to invest your money and generate high returns with little or no risk. But in min many Ponzi schemes, the fraudsters do not invest the money. Instead, they use it to pay those who invested earlier and may keep some for themselves. With little or no legitimate earnings, Ponzi schemes require a constant flow of new money to survive. When it becomes hard to recruit new investors or when large numbers of existing investors cash out, these schemes tend to collapse end quote. So that's directly from the SEC. So basically, what they're saying is that um, they, they're saying, hey, you know, give me your money, I'm gonna invest it, I'm making whatever 20%. And, uh, and I'm gonna keep I'm gonna pay these investors 20%. As long as I'm able to keep sucking in new people, I can keep paying the old ones out 20%, I keep 80%. That's a pretty good deal. Um, but of course, I'm not really investing, I'm not really making anything, but everybody thinks I am. Now, Ponzi schemes were named after Charles Ponzi, who duped investors in the 1920s with a posted stamp speculation scheme. All right, so we want to break this down. All right, so first, Ponzi scheme organizers promise to invest your money and generate high returns with no risk. Um, so that's that's a big piece of it. All right. So they go further on in the SEC piece, um, a couple other things that they list as red flags. So if you're, this is the SEC warning you. So quote, many Ponzi schemes share common characteristics. Look for these warning signs. One, high returns with little or no risk. Every investment carries some degree of risk and investment yields uh, yielding higher returns typically involve more risk. Be highly suspicious of any guaranteed investment opportunity. So, okay, that's one. Another sign overly consistent returns. So they say investments tend to go up and down over time. So be skeptical about an investment that regularly generates positive returns, regardless of overall market conditions. Um, they say that it's uh, they also another red flag is secretive complex strategies. They say to avoid investments if you don't understand them and can't get complete information about them. Um, they say that they there's issues with paperwork. 
An account statement errors may be a sign that funds are not being invested as promised. Uh, and then finally, they say difficulty receiving payments. Be suspicious if you don't receive a payment or have difficulty cashing out. Ponzi scheme promoters sometimes try to prevent participants from cashing out by offering even higher returns for staying put. So that is a good, some good red flags. Hopefully you guys took advantage, uh, took note of that. If you see any of those red flags, be careful. But now let's take that and let's compare those warning signs, those attributes, and let's see if Bitcoin has any of those. Okay, so before we, uh, before I compare Bitcoin point to point by the to that list, um, let's first just take a look at how Bitcoin was launched. A lot of people may not know this. So in, in August of 2008, somebody identifying themselves as Satoshi Nakamoto created Bitcoin.org. Two months later, October 2008, Satoshi released uh, what's called the Bitcoin white paper. And that that's basically the document explaining how the tech how the tech would work and what the solution was how they how he solved what's known as the double spending problem. The problem with digital goods is that if you send me a song or a photo or a video, I can make a copy of it on my computer. And if I send you the video, how do you know if I don't still have a copy on my computer? Um, so he he solved the double spending problem. That's the big revolutionary thing that Bitcoin solved. Um, that there's only one Bitcoin and it can't be copied or double spent. Um, in addition to that, a couple months later, January of 2009, Satoshi published the initial software, the Bitcoin code software, um, in the Genesis, Genesis block, the first block of the blockchain. Um, there was no spendable Bitcoin there. Um, and he provided a time-stamped article headlining, uh, which I love. It was uh, an article headline about bank bailouts from the Times of London. And I love that he put that in there. He said, the chancellor is on the brink of another bailout. And the reason why they put that is because that was at the time of the 2008 bank bailouts. It was the time when the great financial crash. And so he basically stamped it saying that this is made as a response to that. Because you are bailing out these banks, we're going to create our own monetary system, is what he said. Um, from there, it took uh, a few days to finish mining the block. Um, there was really nothing going on in there. Um, and then and then uh, there were some other people that got involved. Hal Finney started um, publicly tweeting about Bitcoin. He was running software. Um, Satoshi was running it. Him and Satoshi and Hal Finney were sending Bitcoins back and forth to each other. Um, basically, the point that I'm making here is that this was done out in the open on the public um, message boards. There was other people involved. Hal Finney, we had Nick Zabo, um, Adam Back. They were all getting involved in this. They were all aware of it. They were all mining Bitcoin. So this was not done in the in the dark. This was not done, um, you know, not, this was not done nefariously. A lot of, uh, well, pretty much, I think all the other cryptocurrencies besides Bitcoin were done with what's called a pre-mine. And so when the founders created their token, they created a bunch for themselves. So they printed, you know, 100 million tokens for themselves, and then they gave away a little bit. Typically, they would keep anywhere from typically about... 30% to sometimes as much as 70% of the tokens they created, the founders would keep that for themselves. But with Bitcoin, there, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't done. As a matter of fact, he publicly put it out to everybody long before ever, ever mining any on his own. As a matter of fact, the coins that Satoshi Nakamoto mined have never been moved. And so there was no pre-mine in that. Now, um, now that you understand that, let's dig into a little bit about these red flags and kind of dispute some of these one by one by one. Now, by the way, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Mark Moss show, we're talking about Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies and the decentralized revolution that's happening. Uh, specifically, I'm talking about 
Bitcoin being a Ponzi scheme. Is it? Is it a Ponzi or is it not? Well, we're breaking down what a Ponzi is, and I, I gave you the warning flags, and we're going to look at some of those in comparison to Bitcoin. Um, again, you're listening to The Mark Moss Show, talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, giving you the education that you need to thrive and succeed through this crypto revolution. I'll be back with more on this in a second. Don't go away. All right, welcome back. You're listening to The Mark Moss Show. We're talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and the decentralized revolution that's happening right now. And specifically before the break, I was talking about Bitcoin being a Ponzi scheme. Is it a Ponzi scheme? Is it not a Ponzi scheme? What does a Ponzi scheme even mean? Well, I read to you the definition from the SEC of what a Ponzi scheme is, and I read to you a list of red flags they said Ponzi schemes have and what you should be watching out for. So what I want to do now is let's compare Bitcoin to the red flags of, of a Ponzi scheme, and let's see if that works out. So the first thing, as they said, that uh, investment returns were pro they, they, they promised um, high returns with little or no risk. So with Bitcoin, there's no investment returns promised. Satoshi never promised any investment returns, let, let alone any high investment returns, never promoted any consistent investment returns. Um, as a matter of fact, Bitcoin was known for the first decade of its existence of being extremely highly volatile speculation. Um, the online writings from Satoshi still exist because it was launched through message boards. And so we can still see what he said. And he barely ever talked about any financial gain at all. As a matter of fact, he mostly only wrote about technical aspects. He talked about freedom. He talked about the problems of the modern banking system and things like that. But he never talked about, you know, making a bunch of money from that. And so I think that's a big key to differentiate. A couple things that he said, uh, one of the quotes that I love that he said, now, of course, I'm educating on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, but what, what um, well, he said a couple things. He said, uh, it might make sense just to get some in case it catches on. That's what he said. So he didn't say, hey, you should buy it. You can make a bunch of money. Hey, you should buy it. You're guaranteed to make a bunch of money. Hey, you're guaranteed to get high returns. He didn't say any of that. He said, it might make sense to get some just in case it catches on. And that's what I tell people. If you're skeptical about Bitcoin, um, at this point, I don't know how you could be. But if you are, that's okay. You're new to it. I understand. But hey, it might make sense to get some just in case it catches on. That's what he said. Um, let's see a couple other things here. Um, okay, so the second one, um, the, the second red flag that they that they warned us of was that they they that a Ponzi scheme uses secretive and complex strategies. Okay, well, Bitcoin is open source. But open source is the opposite of secrecy. Now I talk a lot about the Federal Reserve. The the Federal Reserve is the opposite of open source. The the Federal Reserve is secret. As a matter of fact, in a previous segment, I was talking about the Federal Reserve and how um, a Freedom of Information Act request was filed against them, and they are denying their request, which I don't even know how that's legal. Um, it's the opposite of open source. So Ponzi schemes rely on secrecy. If the investors understood that an investment they owned was actually a Ponzi scheme, then of course they would try to pull their money out immediately, right? It's the secrecy. Um, the secrecy prevents the market from appropriately pricing the investment until the secret gets found out. So one of the most famous examples of the Ponzi scheme was Bernie Madoff. And investors in Bernie Madoff's scheme thought they owned a variety of assets. But in reality, the earlier investors' outflows were just being paid back from new investor inflows. So it wasn't actually money being made from the investments. The investments listed on their statements were all fake. And um, for any of those clients, it would be nearly impossible 
to verify that they're fake. Like, how could they do that, right? They didn't have access to it. There was secrecy. Bitcoin is the opposite though, right? Bitcoin works the opposite on an opposite set of principles. It's a distributed piece of open source software that requires a majority consensus to change. Every line of code is known. There's no central authority that can change it. And you know, one of the things that we say with Bitcoin is don't trust, but rather verify. And so what that means is that because the code is open source, because I can run the Bitcoin software on my own, anybody, anybody can just freely download it and run it on a, on an old laptop. If you want, you can use that to audit the entire blockchain. You can use it to audit the, um, to audit the entire monetary supply. It doesn't rely on a website. Uh, there's no data center. There's no corporate structure. There's none of that. And because of this, there's no issues with the paperwork, right? There's no difficulty receiving payments as, as the sec told us there was uh, red flags about now, you know, there's, of course, there's bad actors that would, you know, associate with this, with the, with the ecosystem, let's say, um, you know, people uh, rely on others to hold their private keys, for example, and those people holding uh, private keys, the custodians could be bad, they could do things like that. Um, but the but the Bitcoin software isn't isn't bad. The Bitcoin software doesn't trick people, it's open source. Um, another thing is that um, back to that, as I was kind of saying before about the mining, um, there was no there was no pre mine there. And so um, Satoshi didn't really get, never got any of his any of his coins that he's mined. Um, but usually, you know, so Bitcoin was launched and open in a fair way when it was launched. But as I said, most cryptocurrencies don't follow those principles. So like with Ethereum, for example, Ethereum is the number two cryptocurrency by market cap. And the Ethereum developers provided 72 million tokens to themselves and their investors prior to any being available to be owned by the broader public. So that's about half of the current token supply of Ethereum. So before anybody could get it, half about about half 72 million tokens were given to themselves and their investors ripple xrp on the other hand is even worse now if you're an xrp fan um, plug your ears you're not gonna like to hear this but ripple labs pre-mined 100 billion xrp tokens with the majority being owned by ripple labs and then what they did is they gradually began selling the rest to the public but they still hold the majority. Now, of course, they're currently being accused by the SEC of selling unregistered securities, and we've yet to see how that plays out. But with Bitcoin, the founder gave himself no advantage to mining Bitcoin. He started talking about it. He started giving the software out long before mining was ever done. Um, so lots of people had the same opportunity to mine at that same time. And he's never even cashed his coins in anyway. And so that makes it the cleanest approach. The other thing is that um, there's no leader, right? So Bitcoin is uh, really interesting because there's no centralized leadership. Uh, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, a person or a group of people, you know, a group of people potentially, um, they disappeared. So there's no leader there. Um, and so I think when you break that down point by point, you see that it doesn't really trigger any of these red flags. Um, there's, you know, again, they're not unregistered investments or unlicensed sellers. If, if there was maybe any um, red flag to be raised, potentially, and not, not about a Ponzi, but about a, but a, but about a security, um, is that, uh, you know, I mean, you're selling assets, um, but it doesn't mean that just because it's an asset, it could be maybe potentially a security it doesn't mean it's a Ponzi, right? So it doesn't mean that. 
Now, let's look at something else. Let's look at um, a broader definition of a Ponzi, right? So I think I've proven that Bitcoin is not a Ponzi based off of the SEC's definition and the SEC's red flags. But I want to look at a broader definition of a Ponzi because I, I believe that maybe there are some similarities to the gold market or some other assets like that. And I, I think if you understand how the gold monetary network works, or the fiat banking system works, you might actually see this whole situation from an entirely different angle. Now, by the way, you're listening to The Mark Moss Show. We're talking about Bitcoin. We're talking about cryptocurrencies. We're talking about the decentralized revolution that we're going through. We're talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, well, Bitcoin not being a Ponzi scheme as it's been accused of many times before. Uh, when I come back, I want to talk about, like I said, the broader definition of a Ponzi, talk about the gold market, talk about the fiat money system and the stock market. And like I said, once you understand these from this different angle, I think you'll see this from a completely new light. You don't want to miss this. You need to understand this. Listen to The Mark Moss Show. I'll be right back. Don't go away. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. 
In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. You're listening to The Mark Moss Show, and we're talking about Bitcoin and decentralized uh, revolution, cryptocurrencies, and all that stuff that's going on right now. And specifically before the break, I was talking about Bitcoin and uh, Bitcoin being a Ponzi scheme. Is Bitcoin a Ponzi? What is a Ponzi? (laughs) A lot of times people throw these words around and they don't ever really stop to think about what they are, what they mean. And so I want to break that down. We've been uh, dissecting what the SEC said a Ponzi was. Um, We talked about the Bernie Madoff scandal. I talked about the red flags that the SEC gives you to watch out and be careful if you may be involved in a Ponzi. And then we went point by point and showed how Bitcoin actually doesn't have any of those red flags. Um, now what I want to talk about is, is something bigger. I want to talk about the broader definition of a Ponzi because the narrow Ponzi scheme, you know, as I just made the case, it clearly doesn't apply to Bitcoin. Um, and so what, what some people try to do is they use like a broader definition of a Ponzi scheme to assert that Bitcoin is one of them. You have to be very careful, like I said, with these words and definitions, especially in today's age, because we've twisted all these words. So for example, let me give you an example, um, capitalism. Capitalism has almost become this dirty word, and uh, I've found myself starting to not use the word capitalism and instead use um, free markets because free markets just sound different. And people think, no, capitalism is capitalism led to slavery, and capitalism led to colonialism, and capitalism um, allows these greedy corporations to pollute the environments. Right? Okay. Well, we should ex- inspect the word capitalism then because. Um, I don't believe that is capitalism. So capitalism is, sure, private property rights and um, me being able to manage and control my property rights and direct them as I see fit. Now, um, what people think is that um, capitalists are only in the pursuit of profits, and that's it. And so that's what leads to slavery and colonialism and and et cetera. But that's that's not totally true. So capitalism is the protection, the priority of private property rights, private property rights. It's also voluntary exchange. And so my thoughts, my labor, my energy is my private property. That's my private property. Uh, My arm is my private property. Nobody can move my arm except for me. That's my private property. My energy is my private property. My, 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 My thinking capacity, my ideas, my creativity, that's my private property. And so if anybody were to, you know, hold me as a slave, for example, 
I don't think that would be protecting private property. As a matter of fact, I think that would exactly contradict that. Uh, another attribute of, of capitalism is voluntary exchange. If I'm a slave, <laughs> that's not voluntary exchange. So you see, by omitting the key words that define what capitalism is, sure, then you can say capitalism is colonialism. Uh, if you're saying all capitalism is, is trying to be as greedy as you can and try and grow your capital, but that's not what it is. It's protecting private property rights and free and voluntary exchange. All right. So it's important to break that down. Now, by the way, uh, I want to throw a plug out. I wrote a book um, a couple weeks ago um, trying to uh, actually define this much better. Um, and you can go to uncommunist.com, uncommunist.com, and you can check out this book. It's just a little booklet. Um, and I basically took the Communist Manifesto and we rewrote it. And it's, it's just about a 45-minute read. Um, and I've redefined um, this capitalism theme because in the Communist Manifesto, he broke down how capitalists were bad and didn't contribute anything. And I think he just got it all wrong. And so in Uncommunist, I basically rewrote the book to kind of reframe it. That's why it's in the top of my head. But it's important to understand these um, these words and what they mean. And so back to Ponzi, uh, we also need to understand what it means because we broke down the definition, but they're trying to use a broader definition of what that Ponzi scheme is. So um, a Bitcoin is, is, is basically a commodity. That's how the commodities exchange has labeled it. Um, the IRS has labeled it as property, which is like a commodity. So in the sense, it's a scarce digital object, but um, it provides no cash flow, um, right? But it has utility because it allows me to store wealth and transmit value, um, but there's no cash flow, right? It's just a digital object. Now, like any commodity, um, so commodity like energy, like wheat, like grain or whatever, it produces no cash flows or dividends, right? So it's only worth what someone else is willing to pay for it or trade you for it. And that's a key piece. So that's what people say with, 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 uh, with Bitcoin. Yeah, it's only good if you can find someone else to buy it from you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like every other commodity in the world, <laughs> because it pays no cash flow or dividends. It's only worth what someone else is willing to pay for it. All right. Now, it's specifically, it's a monetary commodity, commodity, but it has utility, like I said, storing and transmitting value. So it kind of made gold is probably its closest comparison. So if we look at Bitcoin versus the gold market, now some people say that Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme because like I said, it relies on an ever larger pool of investors coming into the space to buy from the earlier investors, right? So if more people don't come by, you need, you know, they say, Mark, you're always like, you're always shilling Bitcoin. You just want more people to buy. Um, yeah. Okay. So Bitcoin, you know, need, they say that it needs an ever larger pool of investors to come in, but that's basically the same thing as other networks. So the reliance on new investors is correct. That's an okay framing. Bitcoin keeps growing its network effects, reaching more people, and it reaches more people with bigger pools of money, which then keeps increasing its usefulness and its value. Right? So, um, Metcalf's law, if I'm the only person in the world with a phone, it's not worth very much. If more people have phones, it's worth more. When everybody has a phone, they're worth more. And so as it reaches more people, it becomes more useful and more valuable. Yes, they are true with saying that, right? But that doesn't make it a Ponzi scheme. Because if I use similar logic with gold, uh, then gold's a 5,000-year-old Ponzi scheme, right? Because the, the vast majority of gold's usage is not for industry, it's for storing and displacing, displaying wealth. It produces no cash flow. It's only worth what someone else will pay for it. Um, if people's jewelry tastes change and if people no longer view gold as an optimal store of value, then its network effect would go down and it would lose value, right? 
So very similar. It requires more and more people to continue to use it and continue to store their wealth in it. Um, there's about 60 years of gold's annual production supply estimated to be available in various forms around the world. And that's like 500 years worth of industrial only supply. And that's factoring out jewelry and store value demand. And so that means that gold's supply demand balance to support a high price requires the ongoing perception of gold as an attractive way to store and display your wealth because it's not being used for uh, for industrial usage. So gold's monetary network has remained robust for a long period of time because the collection of unique properties it has is what made it continually regarded as being optimal for long-term wealth preservation. All right, that's why people use it. Similarly, Bitcoin relies on network effects, meaning a, a large number of people need to view it as a good holding to retain its value. But a network effect is not a Ponzi scheme in, you know, in itself. Prospective investors can analyze the metrics of Bitcoin's network effects and then determine for themselves the risk and reward of buying into it. So Bitcoin is no more a Ponzi scheme than gold is a Ponzi scheme or any other commodity would be a Ponzi scheme. Now, what about if we look at the fiat banking system? Now, this is interesting. So let's look at it in the same type of a lens. So by the broadest definition of a Ponzi scheme, the entire global banking system is a Ponzi scheme. Now we've talked about um, the Federal Reserve has now come out and said they're going to cut rates. They're going to cut. Um, they're going to start tapering. Uh, sorry, cut taper. They're going to. They're going to start tapering, and they're going to start raising rates. And I've said over and over and over again, you can't taper a Ponzi. You can't taper a Ponzi because it requires new money coming in to pay the old people. And so, um. I'm going to back it up. I've said that many times. You've probably heard me say that many times. Let's back that up here. Like I said, the broadest definition of a Ponzi scheme, the entire global banking system is a Ponzi scheme. So firstly, fiat currency is an artificial commodity, right? A dollar in and of itself is just an object made out of paper. Now, the dollar is supposed to represent something. The, the, it's an artificial commodity. So gold was money for 5,000 years. Gold's hard to move around. It's not portable. It's hard to pay someone in gold. So I put the gold in a bank and the bank gives me a paper gold certificate. Gold is layer one settlement. The paper gold certificate is layer two. The gold I can the paper certificate I can transact very quickly, but it's not final settlement. And so what that means is that there's additional risk there. Um, but really that that paper only represents a, it's a claim against the gold. All right. Now, secondly, when we organized all these pieces of paper, or let's call it a digital representation of the paper, because now most uh, dollar transactions today are digital. So if we take the piece of paper, the digital representations in a fractional reserve banking system, then we add another complicated layer. So what does that mean? So that means that the banks create money or they create currency from thin air. Right, the fiat money. So first of all, fiat. A lot of people don't understand what fiat is. People think that fiat money is like fake money. That's not really what it means. I'm going to give you the definition of fiat money, and I'm going to explain to you how they create this fiat money through the banking system out of thin air. Uh, when I get back, you're listening to the Mark Moss Show, talking about Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and the decentralized revolution. Talking about the fiat money system and how that is a Ponzi system and not Bitcoin. I'll be right back with more. Don't go away. All right, welcome back. You are listening to The Mark Moss Show, and we're talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and the decentralized revolution. And uh, 
I was uh, knocking down some of the big objections that you hear uh, talking about how uh, well, we were taking a look at, is Bitcoin really a Ponzi scheme, yes or no? We looked at what the definition of a Ponzi scheme is, first of all, what the SEC warns us, the warning signs of what a Ponzi scheme is. We looked at um, the broader definition of it. We looked at one of the best, the most famous Ponzi scheme histories, uh, Bernie Madoff. And now we're looking at a broader definition. We compared the Ponzi scheme of Bitcoin to gold and how if, uh, if Bitcoin's a Ponzi scheme, then gold's a Ponzi scheme as well. And where we just finished off, we were talking about uh, the fiat banking system and how um, by the broad definition of Ponzi scheme, the entire global banking system is a Ponzi scheme. Now, I was talking about fiat currency, and a lot of people think that fiat currency is like means it's not backed by anything, for example. Um, but what fiat currency means is, uh, I believe it's a Latin word, and it means like by decree. So what does that mean? So um, that means that Fiat money has value because we say it does. We've decreed it. As a government, we've said you must use this by law, right? And so that's what it is. But like I said, it's just an object made out of paper. And so what happens is um, that, that paper, that money, that, that currency is created when the banks loan it into existence. And so the Federal Reserve creates um, reserves. <laughs> they put those reserves into the banks, and then the banks loan money into existence. And it's a fractional reserve banking system. So what that means is that um, you deposit your money into the bank, and then the bank keeps that money on deposit, on reserve, and they loan money out in multiples of that. And so, for example, if um, you bought something from me for $10, I take that $10, I put it into the bank. The bank holds on to one of those dollars, and the nine loans them back out. And those $9 go into nine different banks, and the bank takes 10% of it, holds it, and the rest loans it back out. And that process repeats over and over and over and over and over again. That money is created into existence. So when you take out a loan for a house, a car, a boat, an RV, that money is created into existence. And so what that means is if only a few percentage of the people were to all go to the banks, let's say that you know all these people that don't have trust in the banks anymore— decide we're all going to go to the bank and pull our money out right now. That would create what's called a run on the bank. It hap it's happened many times throughout history and even in recent history. And the banks would collapse because they don't have the money. They would create it out of thin air. Now, realistically, the banks would say no. <laughs> they would say, no, you can't withdraw. As a matter of fact, go to your bank and try to withdraw $20,000 and see what happens. I pretty much guarantee you, if you drove to the bank today and tried to withdraw $20,000, you could not get it out. They would tell you that. They would tell you no. Because they don't have the cash. That's why. If you want to get $20,000 today, you pretty much have to organize that ahead of time. You have to order that ahead of time. They just don't have the cash. Now, like I said, this has happened many times throughout history. In recent history, it happened to some banks in the early 2020s during the pandemic shutdown. Um, it occurs regularly around the world. And it's actually, like I said, one of the SEC's red flags of a Ponzi scheme is, quote, difficulty receiving payments. Hmm, that's interesting. So um, <laughs> that's a red flag. They warned me about that. So well, that's uh, one strike against it. Now, it's kind of like um, probably as a kid, you guys have played the game musical chairs, right? There's like a set of chairs. Someone's playing music. Um, there's one less chair than there are people <laughs> than kids. And they walk and run around and around, right? When the music stops, one per one kid, unfortunately, doesn't, doesn't get a chair, right? And the next round, you move another chair. 
um, and on and on and on. Eventually, you have just two kids in one seat, and then eventually there's a winner. Um, and that's basically what the banking system is. It's a it's a permanent round of musical chairs. There's more there's more kids than chairs. There's more people than money, and uh, they all can't get one. Right? If the music stops then that would become very clear. Now, what happens to stop the music? Well, that's when trust is lost, right? Um, For the United States, banks collectively have about plus or minus about 20% of customer deposits held as cash reserves. So about two out, so that's like back to the musical chairs. There's 10 kids walking around the chairs and there's only two chairs to put that into perspective. That's basically what we're working with. Um, so that's not very good um, at all. Now, this this actually used to be much lower. It was about 5% back to the um, global financial crisis. So that means out of, um, anyway, way, way more kids, way less chairs. That's what that means. Um, and so that's basically how it works. It's a, it's a red flag. Um, it's a Ponzi scheme. There's not enough money for the people to be able to pull their capital all at once. And so people would run into that difficulty receiving payments. Um, now the monetary system also, like I said, functions as like this round of musical chairs on, on top of artificial governed government issued commodities, um, which is those, those paper monies, right? So there's more claims on the money. There's more kids than there's available than, than there are chairs. Now we kind of accept this as normal. Well, actually we don't accept it as normal. Most people just have no idea. Um, I've said many times before, um, Henry Ford famously said over 100 years ago, if the American people knew how the banking system worked, there'd be a revolution before the morning. That's why you don't know. So most people don't know you're actually playing a game of musical chairs. But for those that do, like myself, we also assume it may never end, right? The the fractional reserve banking system, it's functioned, you know, for a few hundred years. Um, You know, I mean, sure, there's been a few, you know, um, problems here and there. But, you know, for the most part, it's not that bad. Um, although, you know, the purchasing power of my fiat currency has lost about 99% of its value. I I guess that's not really good. Most people don't know that as well. They think things are getting more expensive. They don't realize that that means that their dollar has just lost the value. Uh, But what that really means is that investors either need to earn a rate of interest that exceeds the real inflation rate which of course isn't happening, or they have to buy investments instead, which inflates the value of stocks and real estate compared to their cash flows and pushes up pushes up the price of those assets. Um, <clears throat> so if the inflation rate, if the government printed 30% more currency, then you need to make about 30% more money, which as I said, most people aren't getting that pay raise. And so everyone is being forced into being an investor. Um, also there's very high frictional costs. So, um, again, uh, another variation of the broader Ponzi scheme claim asserts that because Bitcoin has frictional costs, it's a Ponzi scheme. Um, the system requires constant work to keep, to keep it functioning. So you have to, you know, mine it, you have to pay a transaction fee to move it. Um, but again, Bitcoin is no different in this regard to any other system of commerce that costs money to move gold. For example, any, any healthy transaction has a cost associated with it, right? So Bitcoin miners have this customized hardware, they pay electricity, they have um, support personnel, all those things. If I was talking about gold, gold miners have the you know, same thing. They put a bunch of money into equipment, they have personnel, they have exploration, they have to extract the gold, they have to process it, all of those things. So there's cost. And also the global fiat monetary system has frictional costs as well. Um, and so, you know, banks and fintech firms extract over $100 billion a year 
in fees. And that's just what happens. That's the way things work. Um, so the gold system, the Bitcoin system, and the monetary system both um, require that. And then I guess um, summary, um, I would say Bitcoin is a network effect and not a Ponzi, right? So the, the broadest definition of a Ponzi scheme refers to a system that must continually keep operating to remain functional or has frictional costs. Um, Bitcoin doesn't meet this um, because, you know, any more than, than the gold market does in any way, but the global fiat banking system does. As a matter of fact, we saw President Biden come out talking about that last stimulus and they said, um, the government has always paid its bills, but we need to take new debt in order to pay the old debt. He said that. I don't have a clip for you. I wish I, I should have pulled that ahead of time. Uh, but he basically told us up front, we are a Ponzi. We need new debt to pay our old debt. Um, not like Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't do that. And hopefully that makes sense. You're listening to The Mark Moss Show, talking about Bitcoin. Thanks for listening. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.